Right, I want to start today by just talking about uh, zombie films, if I could. Does anyone like zombie films or shows or... Yeah, all right, we got a, we got a, I knew Katrina would like it. Um, if Michael was here, he'd be all about it too. Uh, he's a Walking Dead fanatic. <clears throat> well, whether it's a, a show or, or a film, um, it, it, a lot of these kind of films start the same way, or at least they have kind of similar scenes, where uh, this is one from 28 Days Later, um, which is amazing, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Well, I don't know. Can you recommend a zombie film if you're a pastor on a Sunday? I am now, so watch it. Um, there's always this, this scene where you have like the one human who's like going around this cityscape and there's nobody around. It's like empty, and this is this is London, central London. Nobody's around. Um, you see like you know like garbage kind of flowing around. There's bombed out cars. There's like broken down houses. Maybe there's like a little fire and a like a, somewhere on the side of the road. There's this uneasy silence in cities that were once teeming with life, teeming with people. Now, <clears throat> now nobody's there. So you have zombies, and obviously zombies are bad. You don't want to be around zombies, so you got to watch out for them. But you also have to watch out for the other humans who are not really out for your own good. They're kind of out either to kill you or to take your stuff, or no, nobody's really out there to help you, or at least you're not sure if they are, because we've learned how to become ruthless, and basically we're living as dead ourselves. So we see the main character navigate his life through these empty ruins, struggling and desperate to find signs of life. Someone, anyone who's still human or still acts like they're human. I think this is a really good reflection of what our spiritual landscape is like here. Here's what, here's what living in, the, in spiritual ruins looks like. Here's what living in a, in a spiritual kind of desperate place looks like. First, we're lonely. A study by... Um, uh, co-op and the British Red Cross said that over 9 million people in the UK across all ages, that's more than the population of London, are either always or often lonely. People who are older, half a million people over the age of 55, go five to six days a week without even seeing or talking to anybody. But it's also people who are young, because 40% of people aged age 16 to 24 say they feel lonely most of the time, more lonely than not. Almost 1.5 million people in the UK say they don't have friends they can turn to in times of need. They don't even have a friend to talk to. So we're lonely. We're also hopeless. Suicide is the leading cause of death for men and women ages 20 to 34. We're, we're needy. One in every 200 Brits are homeless. 36 new people become homeless every single day. And if you identify as LGBTQ, that's much higher. Also, we're unfulfilled. For many of us who may not experience these uh, more difficult times in life, I think we all have a sense of FOMO. We're all we're afraid of missing out on something. There's always something bigger out there that we, we feel like we should be a part of. We just don't know what it is. Or we feel like this world that, that we're living is probably like a really could be more than, than how we're living it in the moment. I think this is a product of living in a spiritually starved world, which is where we are. We're all spiritually starved, and we're all surrounded by spiritual offers of satisfaction. And we're starving, so we take them. Desperate people live desperately. So a night out with friends, in some ways, as good as that can be, in some ways, it's a symbol of how we're searching for more, wanting to transcend kind of like our normal existence. We're searching for more than just kind of the mundane life. It's a hopeful thing to do. We have addictions that are empty promises to forget the ruins of this world, to forget how hard it is to live in this world. We have hope in partners or families or friends to fill our growling stomachs up with meaning and with love, but they can never do it. 
Or at least they, they might mean well, but they're, never, they're not enough to fulfill the, uh, the, the hunger pains that we have inside of us. So even after consuming all of this, we find out we're still just as hungry as we were before. We still have just as much of that FOMO feeling than we did before. And so we continue our search, and we eat more, and we're still hungry. So we eat more, and we're still hungry. We want to find something, anything, someone, anyone. We've been created with large appetites, and this world cannot possibly fill those appetites. We're created for appetites for the infinite, and we're looking to fill this stuff with, fill our lives with things that are finite. Of, co- of course we're going to be starving. We're created for more. What we're going to find it here in, uh, in Micah 7 is uh, through Jesus, we get the satisfaction that we need. And this allows us to live as we really want to. It allows us to live as humans who are fully alive. Now, spiritual starvation is not anything new because Micah wrote this book uh, thousands of years ago, and they're dealing with the same kind of human problems that we're dealing with now. It's been going on basically for as long as humans have been around. Humans have been spiritually starved. And in this little section, we have a really vivid description of what it looks like. Uh, And we also will get a very brief glimpse as to what spiritual satisfaction looks like. Um, But we're going to start with spiritual starvation. So spiritual starvation leads to a breakdown in all of life, in all our relationships, because our primary relationship with God is broken. We were designed with big appetites that only a God can fill. And if we look to satisfy those appetites with with lesser things, with things that don't really fill us up, life just kind of breaks down. And, And Micah is basically like a preacher, He's a prophet of the time, but what we get in this book of Micah are a bunch of his sermons that he preached over years, kind of connected together. And what he does is a very preacher thing to do here in chapter 7. He gives a metaphor, then he interprets that metaphor, then illustrates that metaphor. So it's a very kind of preacherly way of speaking. We'll just kind of go through it the way that he wrote it for us. So verse 1 is the metaphor. Verse 1 says, um, I am the one... I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There are no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. So gleaning, what does it do with gleaning? Gleaning was the practice of if you owned a farm or had like um, some kind of thing that you would harvest, you wouldn't harvest your field completely. You'd leave some of your field unharvested so that people who didn't have jobs or didn't have food could come and, and eat the food themselves. It was like a way of justice and mercy for people who, had, who were materially poor. So uh, Micah is putting himself in the position of a poor person, needing to glean, so he doesn't have a job, uh, he doesn't have his own land. So he's, he's basically saying, I am in this position where I don't have food, and I need to go get this food that's generally offered to people who are poor. But what relief does he find? He doesn't find any. There's no cluster of grapes. There's not even a fig. Not one fig. He's hungry. He craves food. He's not able to eat. He's hungry, and he will continue to starve. So that's the, that's the big kind of picture metaphor. There's a man who is hungry, looking to, to fill his stomach, and is starving. So like, what, is, what does that mean? Well, thankfully he tells us. In verses 2 through 4, we get this explanation. So Micah's living in a time where, and we've learned this over the past weeks, where not very many people are practicing justice, not very many people are practicing mercy, and he's looking around, and he sees nobody who's faithful to God. Verse 2 says, the faithful have been swept from the land. They're not even here. They've left. Nobody upright remains. So caring for the poor, that's a distant idea. People aren't, aren't, caring, aren't thinking of, of being good for other people. They're focused on hunting each other. And in verse 3, he says, both hands are skilled in doing evil. The hands are the symbol of all that you do. And if, 
but you can't do much more than both your hands. Like that, that's it. This is, this is all you can do. And Mike is saying both their hands are skilled in doing evil. The symbol of action. And their actions don't just do evil, they're skilled in it. So Michael, even though he's not here, which is why I can talk about him, uh, he's, he's skilled in music. It takes patience, it takes devotion. He's, you know, locks himself up in his room and practices all the time. Probably not all the time, but he's dedicated to it. This is what it's like for people, for the people in charge here. They've, they've been patiently practicing evil so they can be good at it. They're skilled. Bribes aren't just going on and kind of generally accepted. They're demanded. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. Bribes. Those in power are using power for their own ends, for their own means. Not to help others, but for them to stay powerful. And then there's this weird thing. Um, and uh, just yeah, keep, we're going to be looking at the Bible back and forth a bunch, so just keep, uh, keep it open or swipe open to it. Uh, verse 4. The best of these people is like a briar, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. What does that mean? I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? Well, thankfully, people who are smarter than me taught me what it meant. Um, so, it is, I mean, and we see them all the time in the north. It's dry stone walls. What do they do? They keep things out. They keep certain things in. They stop the flea, free flow of movement back and forth. So the best, what, what Micah is saying is the best of these people, the best thing they could possibly be doing, be doing is stopping justice and mercy from flowing freely. The worst thing that they're doing is when someone tries to reach through and grab justice and mercy for themselves, they get all cut up by thorns. So the most upright of these evil people are stopping justice and mercy from getting to people who need it. So that's a bit of, a, a bit of his explanation. And Micah, in the next few verses, tells us what it looks like in real life. I think this really hits home for us. So there, verse 5, don't trust a neighbor, no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lives in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. Son dishonors his father, daughter rises up against her mother. Basically, families can place, become places of enemies. So neighbors, don't trust them. Friends, don't have confidence in them. Lovers, do not reveal your true self to them. And families are broken. The place where openness and acceptance should be at its height, which is the family, that's how it ought to be, becomes a breeding ground for enemies. Maybe some of you have that kind of experience in your past with your own family, as I know that I have. I think what Micah is doing here is um, it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Do you guys ever know what that is? So you have like a base level of this needs to be fulfilled before you can think about this, before you can think about this, and self-actualizations like at the very top. Well, this is like a reverse hierarchy of needs, only for our souls. So it's like kind of the bad version. How about I just show you and it makes sense? So the very first thing Micah talks about is people are not walking with God. They're un, they, uh, the faithful have been swept from the land. So now we have unfaithful people living. And this is exact opposite to what we learned about last week in Micah 6, 8, as God says, what really do I require from you? I don't require you to do like put on extravagant worship services. I don't require you to give large gifts. I want you to act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with me. It's a very basic kind of simple way to live. But those people don't exist in verse 7. They're, they're gone. So there are no people who are being faithful to the way that God has called us to live. And so the people are not walking with God. And that means that they're not working for each other. They're stopping justice and mercy flowing to where it ought to go. They're not providing for people who God has called them to provide for. They're called to provide for people who are materially poor. And here we have Micah, who's poor and is starving to death. So they're stopping justice and mercy, and they're powerfully kind of conspiring together. 
And so that leads to people actively working against each other. So which is the exact opposite of loving mercy and acting justly? People are killing each other. They're shedding blood. There's a skill in doing evil. That's another kind of ratchet up. And so if you have people not walking with God, that leads to people not working for each other, which means to people actively working against each other. And then we come to the verses we just read, where there's no trust, there's no freedom, there's isolation. You can't trust a neighbor. You can't be free to be, if, if you have, even with a woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips, it means you can't be your true self even with people who you are most physically intimate with. That's not free. You gotta guard yourself. It's a, it's a, a guarded identity. And you become isolated. You don't have a family anymore. It's up to you. You gotta figure it out yourself. You are by yourself. So no trust, no freedom. You can't be yourself in isolation because the closest relationships become enemies. So really what we have is community breaking down as we live in isolation. Now we feel the top, we get that, and we see that as a problem. I think all of us understand that. All of us have lived and have had those kind of relationships, that we can't be our true selves even with people who we're close to. We're more likely to give of our bodies than we are to give of our longest, kind of deepest longings to each other. But like an iceberg, we feel like often this is where, uh, we feel like this is where the problem ends. But there's all this stuff going on under the waterline here, just like an iceberg, that that's not the fundamental problem. That's not the way to fix the problems that we feel. What it starts with is not walking with God, not working for each other, actively working against each other, leading to these kind of situations. So for us, we might have those felt needs uh, of feeling like people who don't get us, or feeling like we're people who were isolated, or we can't really be our true selves around others because what are they going to think about me? Now, life is never promised to be perfect on this side of the new heavens and earth. We're never promised perfection. But we do have a different orientation as God's people. We can't expect to have anything change if we aren't first walking with God. Because the way to fix our trust issues is to go deep first and to understand how God has called us to walk with him, how God is faithful to us first then we must walk with justice and mercy. If we're going to be faithful to God, we can't do anything else. We must live lives of justice, must live lives of mercy. And that's orientated towards others. It's not orientated towards us. And only when we move our eyes off ourselves and towards the Lord, then through that, towards others, will we have any hope of finding that trust and that freedom and community that we crave. If we want to feel that kind of trust, not only for ourselves, but if we want other people to feel that kind of level of trust, it, it may not make sense to begin with because our, our uh, minds are a bit backwards, but the best thing we can start with is be faithful to God because of what Micah teaches us here. Now, this, is, this isn't going to lead to a perfect life. It's not like, oh, if you're good with God that day, then all the other things will be added to you. It's just not how it is. Like, life is hard. Life is, is full of suffering. And this is actually a harder way to live. It's more difficult. It's much easier just to live above the waterline and just focus on trust or even like focus on isolating yourself. But this is a better life. This is a spiritually satisfied life. A spiritually satisfied life doesn't mean one without problems. It means one that has a hope that transcends our problems. Now, do not buy into this world's narrative of you work really hard at a job, you work hard at being good, and then you'll be fulfilled. You just have to work really hard at it first, and then you'll be fulfilled. So if you're not fulfilled, that means it's your problem. You need to work harder. That is not the gospel. That is against everything that the Bible teaches us. Because the reality is you're just not going to be fulfilled. You just won't. Those things cannot offer the fulfillment that we need. 
Now, we should work hard at our jobs. We should strive to be good towards others. But a career is far too small to deliver the satisfaction that our souls really crave. Families are, are far too small to deliver us that satisfaction we really want. A good moral compass, as good as all those things can be, they're far too small to give us that satisfaction that we really want. We crave for more than that. And for other people, uh, we should not be surprised when people are living without trust, without close relationships, with closely guarded identities, because of course people are going to be acting like that. They're, they're spiritually starved. They're desperate. And desperate people live desperate lives. So we, if we follow Jesus, as people who are striving to start from the bottom up, building our lives on walking with God, we need to cultivate a sense of compassion. Not a sense of like self-righteousness, oh, we got it and they don't. It's a sense of compassion because we're all in the same boat. Because people think living without trust, living isolated, not really having people that you really are connected to, people think that that's normal life. And how bad do we, how, how badly do we care for people who are starving? I mean, do we really care at all? I mean, if we do care, how are we going about it? The bottom fundamental point here isn't that we should just love, all each, love, love, each other, love each other and get along. I mean, that's just not deep enough. The bottom point here isn't that we should all find our commonalities. It's not even that we should strive to be good people. Those, those things are great, but they're not going to solve our spiritual starvation problem. The most fundamental thing, according to God and what he says about it, is faithfulness to him. Not to others first, not to ourselves first, but to him first. And that's because all of our broken relationships stem from a broken relationship with the Father. The only hope for enemies to become family, for us to work for each other, for us to live as our true selves amongst each other in deep relationship with each other, the only hope for that is a life lived with God. That's the bottom of the pyramid. Without the bottom of a pyramid, the pyramid topples over. You don't build the top first. You build the bottom first. So our walk with God is the spring from which all the rivers of this grace flow outward to ourselves, to others, and to our world. Now, Micah is describing how people live when they're spiritually starved. It's like, so we shouldn't be surprised. This is kind of desperate life here. The best thing this desperate world can offer is that everyone should fight for themselves at any cost. That's basically what Micah is saying. And surely we've experienced that in our own lives. We all have spiritual cravings, and just removing religion from our life doesn't remove those cravings. It just means we try and satisfy them in different places. And so that's what the ruins of a spiritually starved world look like. So let's go to the other side and see what a spiritually satisfied life looks like. And because we get a brief glimpse in this in Micah, we just get one verse, and he says, but as for me, in verse 7, but as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. So people who don't follow God live a certain way. So what does a life of spiritual satisfaction look like if we do want to follow God, if we want to be faithful to him? Well, we're going to take those kind of three lines separately. As for me, I watch for hope. I watch in hope for the Lord. Even in this spiritual desolation that Micah has just described, and has taken a lot the rest of his book to describe, Micah is still watching and trusting in the Lord. That's what watching and hope means. Others may be using their power for their own comfort. Others may be hunting each other, making enemies. But our orientation as people who follow Jesus is towards the Lord who's faithful in all things. It's easy to look at our current situation in life and see our problems and only focus on horizontal answers. Like, I need a new job. I need more money. I need my kids to listen to me. I need friends who really get me. 
all those are very real needs, and we should seek to satisfy them. But where are we going first? Ought to be to the Lord, which is where the second part comes in. Micah says, I wait for God my Savior. Now, wait isn't just kind of sitting around and um, twiddling thumbs, although I don't know anybody who actually really does that, sit around and probably scroll on Facebook or whatever. Waiting is something active, like waiting on tables. It means you're there at the table waiting to get instructions from someone so you can go back and do the thing that you need to do. It's a confident expectation in the God who saves, that God is doing something, and I'm, I'm actively waiting for him to come through, not in just some kind of eternal sense, but in everyday sense. So we take all the horizontal problems that we have and we put them into a vertical orientation towards God. So I need a new job. My lack of fulfillment, I bring first to the Lord. I need more money. My lack of provision, I bring that first to the Lord. I need my kids to listen to me. The difficulty of parenting, I bring that first to the Lord. I need friends who really get me. My loneliness, I bring that first to the Lord. To find horizontal answers to our problems is really to live in a constant state of starvation because it's not going to come through for us. To be spiritually satisfied doesn't mean all, all of our longings will be fulfilled, but it does mean our longings are now out of our hands and placed into God's. That's what it looks like to follow God. That's what it looks like to trust God and something larger sometimes than what eternal life is. Eternal life is an easy thing. Oh, I believe God in the future, this kind of abstract quasi-reality I think I believe in, but I don't, it doesn't really matter for, for me today. But to actually trust God, to believe in him, to wait for him to be your savior today means to take that out of your hands and to put it in God's. It's a much more difficult thing to do. But that's what we're called to do, to wait for God, my Savior. And he ends it with, my God will hear me. My God will hear me. In contrast to everything else we bow down to, money, comfort, sex, power, whatever the thing is, this God who saves us, hears us. All those other things do not care about you at all. They don't hear you. They're completely deaf. Just like the idols of Micah's time were gods that were carved out of wood. They were silent. They couldn't hear, let alone act. So are the idols of our time. God hears us. He knows where we are. Despite our obsession with consumerism and our, our, our hope that if we just get the right amount of money and the right amount of things that we'll, we'll live a good life, what, what a horrible kind of life to live for. But we all find ourselves in that. Despite our obsession with that, God still hears us. He knows where we are. He knows better than we do. He knows how much we worship these other idols way more than we do. So we ought not to be ashamed when we bring ourselves to him because he knows it all. He knows our lack. He knows how horrible this world can be, but he's there and he's not silent and he's acting on our behalf. It's not his desire for anyone to ever spiritually starve, let alone his children. How horrible would it be if you had a child who you knew had a need and wouldn't come to you? You want him to come to you because you want to care for your child, all the more with a God who's actually perfect. So for all of us, we're called to wait in confident expectation for him to save us from all of our needs. Think of what Micah's world was like, how horrible it was. The powerful are turning the middle class into poverty, not just materially, but spiritually. You have these outside nations that are going to come and take people over. Like Their culture, as they know it, is going to be destroyed. That's what they have to look forward to. Yet Micah still says, as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. He hears me. That's amazing. That's a, he is in a far worse position than all of us are in this room. None of us think we're going to die tomorrow because an outside nation is going to come in and destroy us and burn us alive. I don't think. 
So what do you need to be saved from right now, even as you sit here, even as you've been hearing these words? Where do you feel starved? And even in the, in the, the immediate future, what, what does that look like? What are, what are your fears? Don't miss out on the opportunity to bring your needs before God. Part of the reason why they're there is because it's an opportunity for you to grow in your relationship with the Father, for you to bring your stuff to your Father. If we seek horizontal answers, sometimes our problems are going to be solved, but no amount of problem solving will ever give us the spiritual satisfaction we need in our souls. So maybe we find that job that we've been hoping for and praying for. Some of you guys are, are looking for jobs. How are we bringing that before our Savior? It would be a shame to miss out on that opportunity for God to speak into there in a way that he's not able to speak into otherwise. What is God speaking to us in our times of need? Are we listening to him? Or could say the same about loneliness, something everyone feels regardless of if you're in a relationship or not. A partner is not going to solve your loneliness problem. Can you imagine what kind of people we would be as the church, as a church family, if we all grew in what Micah's talking about, actually grew in confident expectation before God, had a confident expectation that God is going to work in all the kind of broken ways that we see, whether we see it with our eyes in our lifetime or whether that's going to be in the future. We wouldn't live as a spiritually starved. We'd be different. We'd be people who, even in our lack, could live as spiritually satisfied people. That's the kind of person I want to be. Even in my problems, I want to feel that spiritual satisfaction through God. In these verses, we see the family torn apart and become enemies, from trusting as a family together, free to be themselves, experiencing love and community, to enemies who are now at each other. And what Jesus does in his life is to take enemies who are spiritually starved and create a people, a family, who can trust God because they've been given a new identity in God so that we can freely be ourselves with each other, a family who loves each other and works for each other's good and who is spiritually satisfied. That's what it means for God to be a savior. If he did that on the grand scale of eternity, surely we can trust him on the smaller things we experience on the day to day. So Jesus saw the brokenness of this world, that post-apocalyptic spiritual ruin. He saw what that was like. He heard the cries of his creation starving and he came into that world dominated by unmet appetites, unfulfilled spiritual longings, was with those who used power to keep the weak down, where families become enemies, and he died, putting to death the need for anyone to spiritually starve ever again. He rose again, and that gives us a new identity, one that we don't need to do things to achieve, but one that's freely received by the Father. We don't work for it. It's, it's a gift. There's nothing we can do to earn it. And now, even though what we see is often spiritual ruin, even now, Jesus has ascended and is actually on the throne ruling over everything that we see. Jesus has the power over this world and over us. And he, from his reigning place in heaven, has chosen to send the Spirit, who's God himself, into our lives. The Spirit keeps us crying out to God instead of all these, to these other things, keeps us walking on God's path, keeps directing our souls away from that horizontal focus that we get um, obsessed with so much and orientates us towards living for the vertical so that we might live better lives. This table is a call from Jesus himself to remember what it cost for us to live this life. Not only that, the cost, but also the joy that we get as being people who are previously spiritually starved, now spiritually filled beyond anything, and that 
we have to give it away to others. It's a symbol of God's power over our lives. All who come up to eat and drink have given up on their own power. You say, I cannot even feed myself. I cannot even uh, give myself the, the drink that I need to survive. I have come before this table to be filled because this bread is a symbol of Christ's body. This wine is a symbol of Christ's blood. Both of them destroyed and broken so that we might never experience spiritual starvation, but might always live in spiritual satisfaction. And through depending on the Holy Spirit that we've been given, we lift our eyes up to God, to our Savior, the God our Savior, and live as people who are confident as God sets all things right. Now, if you don't believe those things I've been talking about today, please don't come up and participate with us. But if you do believe that, um, please join us. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer. Um, you just have to be a member of God's family. And maybe you've never done this before, and this could be your first step. Uh, this could be your first step towards being spiritually satisfied. We welcome you. Come and join us. But as, we do, as, we, as you come up, let's all look to God, our Savior, who leads us from being spiritually starved into a life where even when we have unmet needs, we can be spiritually satisfied. Let me pray.